If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Luciano Floridi. He is Professor of Philosophy and Ethics of Information and a director at the Digital Ethics Lab at the University of Oxford. In addition to that, he is the chair of the Data Ethics Group at the Alan Turing Institute. Among multiple degrees, he holds a Doctor of Philosophy in Philosophy and Logic from the University of Warwick. Welcome to the show, Luciano. Thank you for having me over. I'd like to start with a simple question, which is what is intelligence and by extension, what is artificial intelligence? Well, this is a, is a great question. And uh, I think one way of getting away with a decent answer is to try to understand uh, what's the lack of intelligence so that you recognize it by uh, spotting when there isn't intelligence around. So uh, imagine you are, uh, say, um, nailing something on the wall, and all of a sudden you uh, hit your uh, finger. Well, that was stupid, okay? So um, that was a lack of intelligence. It would have been intelligence not to do that. Or uh, imagine that uh, you, uh, you go all the way to the uh, supermarket and you forgot your wallet, so you can't buy anything. Well, that was also stupid. So it would have been intelligent to take your wallet. You can multiply that by, shall we say, a million cases. So there are a million of cases in which you can be, uh, or no, I can be, just to be more personal, I can be stupid, and therefore I can be intelligent by uh, sort of uh, the other way around. So intelligence is a, is a way of, um, shall we say, sometimes uh, coping with the world uh, in a way that is um, effective, successful, but it can also be so many other things. Is not intelligent, or it would be intelligent uh, not to talk to your friend uh, about the wrong topic because um, that's not the right day. Uh, it is intelligent, or not very intelligent, to make sure that uh, you know, that, that party you organize, you don't invite Mary and Peter because they can't stand each other. So the truth is that uh, we don't have a, a definition for intelligence or vice versa for the lack of it. But at this point, I can sort of recycle uh, a, an old uh, joke uh, by one of the uh, judges in the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, I'm sure that whoever is listening or reading this uh, knows that very well. But he was asked um, uh, for a definition of pornography. As you know, he said, uh, well, I don't have one, but I recognize it when I see it. <laughs> and I think that that's intelligent too. Uh, you know, we, we know when we're talking to to someone intelligent on a particular topic. We know when we are doing something stupid about a particular circumstance. Uh, and I think that that's the best we can do. Now, let me just add one last point just in case. Say, oh, but then isn't it fu funny that we don't have a definition for such a fundamental concept? No, it isn't. In fact, most of the fundamental concepts that we use or sort of experience we have don't have a definition. Think about friendship, love, hate, politics, uh, war, the, on and on, you start getting into the sense of, okay, I know what we're talking about, but this is not like water equal to H2O, and it's not like oh, a triangle is the figure of the plane with three sides and three angles. 
because we're not talking about simple objects that we can define in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. We're talking about having criteria to identify what it looks like to be intelligent, what it means to behave intelligently. So if I really have to go uh, out of my way and provide a definition, intelligence is nothing. Everything is about behaving intelligently. So let's get an adverb instead of a noun. So I, I'm fine with that. And I completely agree that, you know, we, we do have all these words um, like life doesn't have a consensus definition and death doesn't have a consensus definition and so forth. So I'm fine leaving it in a, in a, in a gray area. But that being said, I, I do think it's fair to say what's kind of how big of a deal is it? Is it, is it a, a hard and difficult thing? There's only a little bit of it. Or is it everywhere? And and if your definition is about coping with the world, or that's kind of what you're looking at, it's my ability to cope with the world, then plants are, are highly intelligent, right? They will they will grow towards light, they'll extend their roots towards water, like they really cope with the world quite well. And and if plants are intelligent, you're setting a really low bar, which is fine, but I just want to kind of think about it. You're setting a really low bar. Intelligence permeates everything around us. That's true. I mean, you can even say, well, look, the way the river goes from that point to that point you know, or reaches the sea through the shortest possible path, well, that looks intelligent. I mean, remember that uh, there was a past when we thought that precisely because of this reason and many others, plants were uh, some kind of gods and the river was a kind of god, uh, that there was uh, intelligent purposeful, meaningful, goal-oriented uh, sort of activity there and not simply you know, a good adaptation, some me mechanism, causal and effect. So what I want to detach here, uh, so to speak, is um, our perception of what it looks like and what it actually is. So suppose I go back to home and, um, and I find that the, the dishes have been clean. Um, well, do I know whether the dishes have been cleaned by the dishwasher or by, say, my friend, Mary? Well, I'm not looking at the dishes. I cannot. They're all clean. So the output looks like pretty much the same. But, of course, the two processes have been very different in the back. Now, one thing requires some intelligence on Mary's side. Otherwise, she will break things and so on, waste soap, and you get it. And the other one is, well, is simple, you know, dishwashing machine so uh, zero intelligence as far as i'm concerned of the kind we've been discussing you know the one that uh, you know, goes back to the gray area the pornography example is on so um i think what we can do here is to say look we're really not quite sure about what intelligence means uh it has a thousand different meanings uh we can apply to this and that if you really want to be inclusive not even a reverse intelligence why not um the truth is that when we talk about our intelligence well, then we have some kind of a meter, like, like a criterion to measure. And we can say, look, this thing is intelligent because had it been done by a human being, it would have required intelligence. So there is, oh, that was a smart way of doing things, uh, for example. Well, because had that been left to a human being, well, I would have been forced to be pretty smart. I mean, chess is a great example today, and I close with this example. I mean, my, my iPhone is as idiotic, if you pass me the term, as my grandmother's fridge, now, zero intelligence of the sort that we've been discussing here, and yet it plays better chess than almost anyone I can possibly imagine. Uh, meaning, well, meaning that we have managed to detach 
the ability to uh, pursue a particular goal uh, and be successful in implementing a process from the need to be intelligent. It doesn't have to be to be successful. So you are at Oxford, the professor of philosophy and ethics of information. What is that? What? Tell me what that is. Are there lots of professors of philosophy and ethics of information in the world, or are there very few? And and what does that? Um, what does that encompass exactly? Yeah, good point. It's, it's quite a unique position. Um, it was um, established by the university to cover uh, the whole area that uh, goes under so ethics and shall we say conceptual issues raised by. Uh, digital technologies at large. So um, the point is that I also have one of kind of many legs I have uh, in the uh, computer science department. I, I grew up as a, as a logician, uh, so that's the link. And I... Um, the, the sort of effects and the impact of, uh, of computers uh, uh, in society. And halfway through my career, I, I became uh, essentially uh, entirely um, f- sort of curious, uh, interested in uh, understanding what lies behind, what difference it makes in terms of our culture, our self-understanding, uh, the way we interact with the world, with the, the way we make sense of ourselves and the world. And that's what I mean by philosophy. Um, so for those who listening to us, um, there's an easy way of understanding this. Uh, problems are like, uh, are like animals. Uh, they consume resources. Uh, instead of talking about food, you, you talk about maybe computational power or time to process stuff. And if you take that view, uh, then uh, you have problems that consume empirical resources, meaning if you want to know what's in the fridge, you have to open the fridge. There is no way of doing that by sitting tight and pretty on a chair. <laughs> if you want to know whether uh, you, know, you have enough food for enough people, well, maybe some maths will be required. So that particular problem consumes mathematical resources. And then there are other problems that are open. They don't consume mathematical or empirical resources. And I like to call them open problems. Uh, something like, should we have a party next Friday? But that's not about, no yes or no in terms of check how many people are coming or do we have enough wine. It's more about uh, deliberation, thinking, uh, pro and contra. Can we find an agreement? Is it a good idea? Can we be intelligent about it? And I guess the implication is there really aren't ethics around information. There's ethics around the use of information. Is that true? Yes, indeed. I mean, so the ethics of information is about uh, like uh, a bit like a, a environmental ethics. Um, it's not that the environment has an ethics as if, no, in the same sense in which you and I might have an ethics, but it's more the ethics of or about or that concerns uh, the environment. So today uh, we have moved uh, from uh, talking about good old days. Now we're talking 60s. Uh, we used to speak of computer ethics meaning not the ethical problems caused by computers. Then uh, 70s, 80s, maybe still 90s, we started talking about information ethics because we realized that it wasn't just about computers. It was so much more. It was the internet. It was then the apps and then uh, uh, today IoT, Internet of Things, and so on. And more recently, we've been talking about machine ethics, robot ethics, then data ethics. The truth is that uh, we've been sort of inclusive more and more through time and the last sort of uh, implementation is digital ethics, meaning as in environmental ethics, well, the ethics not owned by the digits, but that concerns 
that particular uh, environment, that is the digital environment, call it maybe the infosphere and uh, uh, the life that we have inside that particular environment. And so just to kind of understand how you look and think of the world, I'll, I'll give you just one kind of, you know, stock ethical problem. And just tell me as, a, as an ethicist how you approach it. So we'll talk about um, the state's use of information in an ever more digital age. And the setup is that in the past, you know, the state could spy on people, but they couldn't do it very efficiently because there are just too many people doing too many things. You can't listen to every phone call. But with uh, computer technology, you have, you know, cameras, uh, AIs that can read lips. So any closed circuit TV can probably understand what anybody within, you know, its range is saying. It can digitally recognize the words being said on every phone conversation. Every email can be scanned. And that information can be used by a, by a state and is, in fact, uh, used by states to model citizens' behavior. And that can be used, you know, for the noblest or the basest of goals. And so if you're advising a government or if you're thinking about this, the philosophy and ethics of, of how that information is used by a government, how do you, where do you begin? Well, this particular case, um, I think we need to understand exactly um, the relationship between the goals that we want to achieve, uh, what kind of society we want to build. And um, I hope I'm not being confusing here, how we get there, so the process. Uh, in the following sense, we come from a, a, a world, as you said, where this, shall we say, uh, monitoring, uh, this spying on citizens was limited by analog means, which simply couldn't do it because we didn't have the, the power, the, the computational abilities, the, the, the memory, the, it was too expensive, etc. So what we uh, assume at the time, imagine last century, you know, uh, was that that was the problem and it was linked to a second problem, which was, okay, what for? Maybe it's a good idea if you are running, say, an anti-terrorist sort of campaign. Now, you, you want to monitor everybody's phone. Well, why not? If you can save lives, etc. So in that sort of um, debate, limited means good goals, I think we missed something that was uh, right there, but we couldn't perceive because of the limited means. Namely, that we, all of us, are very fragile. Uh, you and I, uh, that fragility uh, emerges immediately uh, when we are, for example, driving on, uh, on a motorway and um, all of a sudden the police car is passing through. Well, that changes the behavior of everybody immediately. Even the most honest person, even if you're already going under you know, speed limit, etc. Well, 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 you go just a little bit more slowly. Uh, you're just a bit more careful. Uh, maybe you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Well, because, because no, being seen, watched, changes your behavior. Uh, you, start, you start wondering whether no, maybe someone make a mistake and uh, misunderstands you for someone else or uh, can actually abuse the power that they have and so on. Now, this analogy is there to show that the old-fashioned idea, no, what means we have, maybe just analog, now digital, more or less powerful, what's the goal, is that a good one or a bad one, misses a third point, which is fundamental. Whom are you having an impact on? And we're not like bricks on which you can exercise all the pressure in the world. It doesn't matter. Can take it. Not true. 
we're very fragile uh, in terms of uh, how we perceive ourselves, how we change our behavior, how we modify our goals, how open our choices are to influence. And if you start monitoring people, all of a sudden what you are doing is more than just changing the nature of the means and fulfilling some even ideal goals that are Imagine for a moment, fantastic. What you're also doing is to change their behavior in a way that is probably, to some extent, uh, irreversible. Well, that is a major problem. So even if we forget, we, we shouldn't, that you know, the means are not justified by you know, the end, but even if they were, well, remember that they come at a high cost, which is influencing people's freedom, manipulating their autonomy, you know, changing their self-determination. Now, that has to be really worth the effort. And so back to your question, sorry for this long, essentially, introduction, you need to ask to the government, say, are you sure this is worth the damage that you're causing? Maybe it is, sometimes. So, in a concrete sense, maybe undergrounds with plenty of CCT cameras, because in London we have had experience of several, say, uh, terrorist attack, maybe that's a good idea. But, say, face recognition in primary school, I don't think so. And that is you know, the kind of ethical perspective that I would like to support. And I assume that that is the scenario of a responsive government, uh, presumably a open society and free debate and, and government officials that uh, are responsible to the citizenry. But what about in places around the world where they don't have that? Isn't, isn't that a bit of an intractable problem? Doesn't Or are there technologies that, co- that are coming along that will allow people to in those environments to preserve the privacy and whatnot? Like, does it, does information in this case tilt the balance of power towards oppressive governments or away from them? Well, I think that uh, oppressive uh, countries and uh, uh, illiberal or uh, sort of uh, more undemocratic places uh, are having a, a fantastic sort of uh, moment now. I mean, uh, it, these technologies uh, enable uh, a level of oppression and control and monitoring on citizens that is unprecedented. Um, it's, it's a shame. I mean, I still believe that uh, digital technologies are large, uh, much more good than bad. Uh, but you can pervert uh, even the best technology to the worst possible means. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, you know, without necessarily naming the usual suspect, but no, you, you, we can if we want, uh, but you know everybody knows that uh, there are uh, countries out there that are, are using technologies for the wrong uh, for the wrong reason. At least let me put this uh, as a sort of a conditional here. At least from our own perspective, from a, a Western sort of uh, liberal democratic society. Also, need to remember that in certain cultures, maybe uh, for example, time uh, uh, plays a, a big role. And uh, just to provide a simple example, maybe in a country with a long history, with uh, no, many, many hundreds of millions of citizens, <laughs> uh, maybe time uh, can also explain why you know, the movement towards democracy is going to take centuries, not years. And perhaps if you want to be really optimistic, what we're seeing is just a, a little glitch or blip uh, in a positive story towards more uh, respect for individual freedoms. That is a real effort in being optimistic. So you have a, a new book out called The Fourth Revolution. Uh, can you give us the subtitle of the book? Why did you come to write it? What are you trying to do with it? 
Give us that story. With pleasure. Uh, so uh, that, that book came out uh, almost accidentally. Because, uh, you may imagine that a professor from Oxford writes unreadable, undigestible books, you know, those research monographs that only other colleagues read. Uh, so this was a, a bit of an exception. Um, it's what people called a trade book. Um, and it was justified by uh, kind of realization, thanks to friends and family, that um, there's a without even noticing, uh, I had been writing things uh, for, for newspapers or for other uh, venues that were slightly more accessible, slightly more interesting, uh, but above all, based on a simple single idea, which was um, at the time uh, when I started all this, I mean, remember, you know, kind of old, and uh, I started doing this when people couldn't care less. But uh, uh, So late 80s, early 90s, uh, still internet, nothing else uh, around. Uh, a lot of discussion was uh, in terms of... Uh, what these technologies can help us to do. So there was a lot of, say, philosophy of technology in terms of uh, the power of technology, the, the change that technology uh, can uh, impress on the world, etc. And so I realized that, well, yeah, that's all true and, and fine and it's important to discuss. However, I thought the real difference here is what it makes to ourselves, to how we understand ourselves, our self-perception. And then I realized, that was the second step, uh, that uh, we had been there before. So the fourth revolution in the title uh, is actually a reference to a, a classic analysis by Freud uh, of three revolutions that had already happened, uh, his own included. Freud tells us that uh, uh, you know, there, there was a first revolution in our self-understanding caused by Copernicus. We thought we were at the center of the universe, and it was such a lovely place where to be. Uh, you know, the, the party was all ours. Uh, and then Copernicus comes and says, well, sorry, you know, you know, you're on a, a small planet in the middle of nowhere going around the sun, and it's, you know, even your uh, place around there is not that crucial either. So that was a, a displacement that ch changed our own self-perception robustly, I mean, religiously, socially, etc. We retrenched, and we moved to uh, the centrality in the animal kingdom. Say, so, okay, well, fine, maybe we are on this small planet, we not, nobody in the universe, but when it comes to planet Earth, we are the queen and the king of the game. And of course, no, the second revolution comes, which is Darwin. And says, well, no, actually, bad news. Uh, you're not that important either. You know, you're part of uh, an evolution, your DNA, you know, so many affinities with other mammalians, etc. So, no, get a grip. Uh, quietly, we had also so endorsed a, a third centrality, and that's the Freudian sort of uh, point. He says, well, look, for all the life of ours on this planet, we have been thinking about ourselves like transparent, thinking, well, I can see what is in my mind, I can tell you what it is and what it isn't, and uh, therefore the centrality in the space, in the mental space, is unique. Unchallenged, well, of course, Freud comes and says, well, no, there's much more going on, uh, so uh, there's no centrality there either. So along those lines, uh, I realized that what we had been going through in the past you know, uh, years was a, was a fourth revolution, hence the title, in our self-understanding, because we had thought that we were at the center of the space of information or infosphere. We were still claiming, you know, after Freud, okay, fine, we're not at the center of the universe, we're not at the center of the animal kingdom, we're not at the center of the mental uh, space. However, when it comes to information, we are the only one who can actually play chess. We are the only one who can park their car. We are the only one who can buy the cheapest fridge online, etc. Well, you know where we're going with this. Uh, Alan Turing, uh, computers, then the internet, then AI, and that centrality is gone out of the window as well. I think it's good news. Don't get me wrong. We're just growing up. No, we don't have the teenager attitude. Oh, it's all about us. Uh, me, me, me. 
It's a bit painful, though, uh, as anyone growing up uh, has experienced, um, not being at the center of the universe or the animal kingdom or the mental space or the infosphere. Uh, it puts you in a different corner. It says, okay, well, maybe we are at the periphery of this game. And um, so part of the book, going back to it, is to describe this fourth revolution, the change in our self-understanding, from a philosophical perspective, so in terms of space, time, experience, interactions, uh, there's also a pinch of politics and ethics uh, at the end of it. And but but go into the fourth one a little more. Like, what do you think? What what are the what are the implications of that? Like, I mean, I can see how the other three kind of changed our way of thinking, and that that. You know, you could you could you could tie the Copernican revolution to uh, the Industrial Revolution by by saying you know it was a mechanistic way of looking at the world, and we extended that by making you know mechanistic tools and factories, and we built things differently. We looked at the world differently because we had this new kind of way we thought. If if somebody fully embraces that we're in this fourth revolution, or that it has happened or is happening, what what do you think will come out of that? Well, I think that there's, um, there's something uh, almost like a, 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 a decision of this particular sort of uh, movie that uh, we are enjoying now. Now, uh, that we, we are on the last episode of the last season, and which is uh, unfolding in front of our eyes. So think in terms of, for example, the, the impact. And I'm just thinking, taking one example. I know there are many more, and I'm happy to discuss the others. But just the example of the impact of digital technologies and AI on the uh, job market. Well, if you look at only recently, you know, people were still thinking in terms, you know, say, only... 20, 30 years ago, oh, of course, no, jobs uh, in the agriculture sector are oh, disappearing. Uh, in, you know, so in, in industry, oh, they're disappearing. But you know, the, the third sector, uh, whatever that you want to call it, uh, services and so on, oh, that would be growing and growing. And, uh, that's safe. Well, that safety was due to the lack of understanding of the fourth revolution, which means, well, no, look, guys, no, if that job is about handling information, we've got machines that do that better than, faster than, more reliably than possibly a lot of other people. So those jobs are going. So if you start looking at the world from this uh, new displacement, a lot of other things are happening that uh, are sort of reorienting our own perception. Well, this example of the job market is, uh, is everywhere in you know, the newspapers. Let me give you just two quick other sort of uh, simple examples. Still coming from a, a pre during pre-fourth revolution modern uh, time, you know, sort of last century. One is the uh, gluing together of presence and location. So if you are, you know, it's even the past generation, uh, you could interact with something as long as your presence there was also your location there. Now, uh, some people might even remember when there were telephones where you actually had to be at the telephone. So it was ridiculous to ask to someone answering the phone, where are you? Because you knew where that person was. You had called their number and it was a fixed line. So you wouldn't ask to your friend Peter, oh, Peter, where are you? Because you just called Peter at home. Now, that world has fast disappeared. Now, presence and location have been detached thanks to digital technologies, AI included. 
And now we can interact as we ordinarily do. Uh, thank you so much. You know, it doesn't take a philosopher from Oxford to say this. Uh, we can interact online, say, with a bank without being uh, located at the branch where we are uh, sort of, uh, doing our business. So my presence and location do not uh, come together as a package anymore. I can give you another example. Uh, law and territoriality. We come from uh, three or four centuries of gluing together the two. We love that. Uh, it meant that my law, my place, my place, my law. And when it comes to you, well, your place, your law, your law, your place. And there was a boundary, physical. Like uh, Today, that doesn't make any more sense. Uh, of course, the cyberspace, infosphere, and so on. And so we have to rethink that particular relationship between space, physical space, geography, territory, reality, and the law. That's why, for example, the last... Um, uh, piece of uh, legislation from the European um, Union talks about protection of personal data everywhere in the world as long as they belong to European citizens. doesn't care whether you are in Singapore, in Washington, or say in the future in uh, London after Brexit. Well, your, your comments about jobs, that's a topic that you know we wrestle with on the show a lot. Uh, do I take it to mean you think that these technologies are going to do more and more things that people do and displace more people, but historically they create as many opportunities for people to use those same tools to do more. Or do you think that we are entering a place where there's going to be a, a great shortage of jobs for people? Oh, I, I think that. I think the real problem is um, is the pace of transformation, and therefore that uh, jobs are being disrupted. The job market is being disrupted at a pace unprecedented, as everybody knows. Well, I don't think the problem. On. Let me let me, no. let me jump in on that because I hear that a lot, but I don't actually believe that. Um, uh -huh. And so let me let me push back on that and and tell me where where I'm wrong. Um, if you look at the replacement of animal power with steam power in this country, in the United States. We went from using five producing 5% of our power with steam to 95% in 22 years. So anybody mm -hmm. who had anything to do with draft animals and any kind of animal power, boom. The assembly line, when that came along, that was a kind of artificial intelligence that must have been horrifying mm -hmm. to people who, um, you know, no longer do you make a car one at a time in a garage, you now make the cars a hundred at a time in a factory. And the assembly line uh, was so transformative so quickly. Then you had the electrification of industry, which depending on kind of like what metrics you want to think about, happened in seven years, something like that. Because all of a sudden, if you're using steam power and the company across town is using electricity, well, you know, that kind of writes itself. Um, yeah, you're dead. <laughs> Exactly. So I look back across the time, and, and interestingly, in the United States, unemployment never once, other than the Great Depression, which wasn't caused by technology, ever got out from between 5 and 10%. It was almost as if it's, and it's fixed seemingly by the business cycle. So even when we're doing these amazing transformations, uh, you could never see that even blip the employment number. So mm -hmm. why, why would this be any faster? It feels agonizingly slow, quite frankly. Um, uh, I, well, yeah. 
let, let, let me let me qualify that because um, I agree with you. I mean, uh, transformation in the past have been sometimes disruptive in, in a way that are uh, fascinatingly fast. I mean, uh, you, you just mentioned 22 years, uh, uh, animal power replaced. I, I, I trust uh, your figure. I'm very happy with that. Um, what I, what I think uh, it lies behind the, the, the statement, what is unprecedented in terms of uh, how fast it's happening, it's not... Um, and I'm happy to you know, uh, go the other way. Uh, this, as I said, this is not exactly the point that uh, we need to make. Uh, but if we want to stick to this particular aspect, I think what uh, is, needs to be appreciated is, is that uh, the, the digital technology behind are running all the other transformations. So it's not just um, like the examples you provide, which are really interesting and, and, and valuable, are examples of um, a particular technology or change or transformation or innovation coming and changing that particular block, boom. With digital technologies, what's happening is a bit more like electricity. So uh, deciding how fast electricity changed the, the world, well, it's still changing it, so to speak. So um, not least because computers are running on electricity. So uh, you may actually say, well, you know what, no, it's just about electricity anyway. <laughs> um, so I guess that what, we, what people, what people myself included, uh, say when that is unprecedented is, um, is the scope of the transformation of the digital, how it percolates any other transformation at, at once, so that if you see something really changing quickly, say for example, uh, the number of people can actually now fly as opposed to not when I was a kid, which because when I was a kid, I mean, that was unaffordable and train it was all the time. Well, that is run by, thanks to also you know, digital technologies. So, but let me go back to the point is that I, I don't think that is particularly important. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be wrong on this <laughs> uh, in case, because I think that uh, um, what uh, is, is important in terms of the jobs, uh, as you said, are we uh, facing a world without jobs or, or where there's a shortage? I don't think so. Uh, I don't believe that uh, even independently of whether you like or do not like or agree or disagree with the view that pace is extraordinary, well, apart from that, the fact that uh, the disruption uh, is going to be uh, changing the uh, job market is probably okay, fine, maybe that is unquestionable, but I don't buy the picture that uh, we are, as it were, having our jobs stolen by robots and AI and digital systems. I think that that is um, based on, uh, if I may say so, uh, two mistaken assumptions, um, and uh, I can quickly go through them uh, if you don't mind, but uh, uh, tell me. Um, but one is that uh, work is a, is a finite quantity. It's like a pie. No, so if someone takes a slice, there's less for me. That's not true. And you get that immediately if you start thinking in terms of the work that you have at home, not cleaning the house. Is there a finite amount? Uh, never. I mean, you just stop at some point because that's the time you have. And the other thing is that, that there is no threshold uh, of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, economic uh, viability of a job, which is also false. What is uh, economically viable today in terms of a service offered or a good uh, on sale, etc., is extraordinarily lower than it was just a, a decade ago, meaning that the lower that threshold, the more some kind of jobs become interesting, possible, feasible. So if you put these two things together, no, there is no finite amount of work and there is a threshold that is constantly being lowered by technology in terms of what is economically viable. Well, together they show that the 
arrival of AI or whatever systems we'll have in the future will have certainly an impact in reshaping the job market, but not in destroying jobs full stop. They will reshape it as in generating things that we have never seen before, maybe. So we better be ready for that. I'm, I'm still kind of wrestling with the, the demarcation of these four revolutions. And, and sometimes in, quest, in the quest to kind of find a common thread, um, one maybe sees them in a sense as, as kind of rhyming, if you will, more. But if you, if you take Copernicus, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we found, he said, you know, and, and I'm not diminishing anything that Copernicus said, obviously, but when we started pointing telescopes out at the, the sky and we would see all these galaxies, we saw every single galaxy was moving away from us. And, uh, and that sure looks like we're in the center. And of course we're not, the universe is presumably expanding and everything's moving away from everything else. But in an infinite universe, the idea that we are not the center or we are the center actually doesn't mean anything at all. Um, and we are special in the sense that there's life on this planet. And w- life may be a really rare thing. I mean, we don't, we don't know how, um, how it, you know, it came about. And, and that is something truly exceptional about this. And then if you come to Darwin, and you talk about the exceptionality of humans, it's, you know, you, you can say, well, it just said we're not, we're, we're nothing special. But I, th- I think we are. I think, you know, the amount of DNA that is different between you and a chimp is, you know, half, half a percent. It's, uh, it's a, f- a few lines of code in computer speak. And yet, we are conscious and we have language and we, I mean, to say, you know, we're kind of no different than the animals is to kind of diminish that we've invented human rights and, and, uh, and written Harry Potter, you know, all of that stuff that we've done. And so we are kind of special. So we live on a very special planet and we're a very special creature. And so do you, do you think that, and I, and I'm, I'm still kind of thinking through the Freud one, but looked another way, isn't the digital one, we have a we have a, on GigaOM we have this test that will a computer replace you, and mm-hmm. it's ten questions, and it asks things about like do you have to move around from room to room or building to building in your job, and mm-hmm. does it cause you do you have to have emotional connection with people, and um, how how many people do it like if very few people do a job it's going to be very hard to like like the person that restored the the vintage chimney in my house it's like a, a robot will never do that. Anyway, mm-hmm. There's no business case to build one. And what I have found is going through these results, I find virtually very few jobs that can a machine could do as opposed to a person. I think my electrician and my plumber, and, and I mean, they're just an infinitude. So is it not maybe that, that the information while transformative isn't isn't quite so well it's going to change everything well I, I, let me put it this way and i'm not trying to be nice i agree with everything you said and that's where we start from the next step to me is understanding exactly why this is correct so i'm not saying oh uh, there's something that you said that is not quite right no no i'm i'm, I'm with you uh, yes exactly 
actually. Why? Why are we still exceptional, despite the fact that we know, you know in that you know, medieval picture of the center universe or the other picture that we were totally separated? You know, we need to think in terms of what was before those four revolutions. Now, not, not just, um, well, you know, in a way, we're still, as you said, we're still, yes, but in what exact sense are we still exceptional? And we're still the most amazing thing, as far as we know, that has ever happened in this universe, full stop. I believe that. I think that that is the bottom line. But I want to understand philosophically why. Why, why do we think so? Why, what justifies this? Now, here is um, the point that I would like to make. I think the four revolutions that we have undergone, uh, they have taught us a lesson. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a humility lesson. Like, okay, uh, as I said, it's, not, it's, it's growing up. It's not like the, the silly teenager who, shall we say, uh, a bit simple-minded thinks that the party is great because it's about him or her. No, the party is great because I organize the party for you. Well, I'm still special, as in I organize the party for you. I'm saying the parent organized the party for you. It's your party, and that is my special nature, my exceptional capacity. So, for example, taking care of the world. Not animal, not nothing, no star, no river, no sea, no mountain. will ever take care of the world. That's us humans. Amazing, extraordinary. The ability to have a mental life, but well, that's us. Is that a blessing? Oh, well, depends on the kind of thoughts you have and the kind of nightmares you may be suffering from, but it is amazing. It is exceptional. So I like to synthesize all this, and uh, forgive me for the philosophical moment, uh, a bit too uh, simple-minded, but I like to think in terms of us as, uh, in different contexts, a beautiful glitch in the system. Uh, we are a bit of a glitch because we are really our, outliners. You know, you look at the world, and honestly, we shouldn't be here. That's not the way the world de develops. You know, a, a, an extraordinary planet with extraordinary life, with extraordinary humans on it, that's weird. That's really anomalous. For some people, that glitch is a plan. And I am happy to you know, uh, open that road to other people uh, of a religious uh, inclination. That's fine, too. For people like me, it's... Uh, an amazing glitch, uh, a stroke of luck, the lottery ticket that you, we won. It is extraordinary. But that is um, something beautiful and uh, uh, not to be found anywhere else. But that is definitely the case. At this point, what does it mean to be a glitch? Well, because um, what makes us special, say, compared to my dog, is, among many other things, my ability to think of what is not the case what is not here now. For example, my ability to worry about my pension uh, or what I did uh, last year. The fact that what if my dog is going to find a way of getting out of the garden moment, which is not happening, but it might. So this openness that we have with respect to what is not the case, what might be the case, the openness to the possible, well, that to me is like uh, the special nature of being, say we say, a bit of a hole in the universe like a, a beautiful glitch that is a hole in the fabric of uh, uh, this uh, cosmos of ours, that is definitely special. So just to synthesize, um, I'm with you. Uh, the reasons why I think may or may not be the same. So when you say why, why we're here, as it were, and why are we a glitch and all of that, um, I assume you actually mean how is it that? Because a why implies there's a reason. 
And that's kind of back to that plan thing, a why would it, but a how, how is it that we happen to come about is a different question. So are you really asking how it is that we're a glitch? No, I mean, we normally ask why, and then we retract, say, well, look, there is no reason. I mean, so you would say, why did I win the lottery? And then, uh, no, that's a very reasonable question to ask. And then someone tells you, you got lucky. <laughs> that's how uh, you won the lottery. No. Uh, and then we're back to your question, the how. So someone could explain, oh, why did the engine stop? Well, that's why, because it worked in such and such way. And then you move to the how. So I don't draw a distinction as you no know, kind of clear cut between the why and the how. Explaining sometimes the how is a way of answering the why. So uh, as we were talking before the show, I have a similarly titled book, The Fourth Age. And my, the last chapter of that book uh, is called The Fifth Age where I kind of speculate what's going to be the next thing. So what is the fifth revolution? I'm, I'm not sure that there's going to be a, a fifth one, but if there were a fifth one, um, it would be the discovery of uh, that there's a, another form of life in the universe. That would really change our perspective brutally about <laughs> how special we are, because we're still holding that view. Deep down, we're still thinking, okay, whatever happened, we're still the only mental life out here. No, if you exclude no, religious things on, in, on the other side of the, no, the line of death. But no, in terms of this kind of universe that we perceive, we still think, oh, look, no, uh, as far as we know, <laughs> we're the only ones. Um, the moment we were to receive a, a radio signal from a far, far galaxy, <laughs> that would really change our culture profoundly, uh, pretty much I like Copernicus. I agree. I, I, I agree. And if you find life just one time, it's not related to us. Like Mars, in theory, could, could be. If any case, if you ever find life one time, just once, then it's everywhere, right? Because in the Drake equation, like all of a sudden, there's a, that means there's a space battle going on right now somewhere in the galaxy. Exactly. So what I mean is uh, really not just finding that the, you know, some, in some planet, thanks to water, etc., some bugs develop, or maybe that would be really you know, uh, exciting, as we know, Mars, yes, no, no, uh, let's debate it. That is super exciting. But mental life, as I said, no, a radio signal saying, hello, how are you? Now, that would be really super spooky, and it would change our men, no, mental perspective of, of our uniqueness once more. So you ask for a fifth revolution, I think that that would be it. You know, I think what it would do also, I, I like to think what it would do is end every national conflict on this planet all at once. Because, uh, you know, the, the, the desire to like cut us up and, you know, there's us and them, us and them, us and them. All of a sudden the cosmic us and them is we're all humans and, and we're all of our destinies are bound up into one fate. Like the fate of the planet is every single, Jack Kennedy said, you know, we all, our basic common connection is that we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our lives. We all cherish the lives of our children and we are all mortal. And I think if, that that's really what that revelation would, would kind of, I think, unite us all and say, wow, well, we are all the same thing. I, I so much agree with you that uh, I wish some smart uh, politician out there were to not fake some signal from some far, far galaxy and just make sure that we stop bickering so much on this planet. 
so even if you were not real, I, I think I, I wish you were. So uh, you know, someone could invent something, and, and even a forgery would would do much good to our current politics. You know, Reagan asked Gorbachev. He said, "You know, if aliens invaded Earth, uh, would we put the Cold War, you know, stop the Cold War?" And, and Gorbachev said, "Yes." And uh, yeah. Anyway, well, it has been a fascinating, uh, fascinating chat. You're an incredibly interesting guy, and, and I've had a lot of fun. Um, your book, again, is called The Fourth Revolution, and uh, I assume that can be had at wherever fine books are sold. But if people want to follow you, kind of your musings on an ongoing basis, do you tweet? Do you blog? What do you do? Well, since I'm a professor at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, uh, we do a lot of uh, social media. So you can follow me on Facebook, uh, Floridi, my surname. Uh, you'll find me. You can follow me on Twitter, at uh, Floridi. Again, uh, you're very welcome. Uh, or simply on the usual mass media but, uh, and uh, Amazon and so on. Well, wonderful. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast, produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.